reach young adult ministry sermons online from Tuesday, April 7th, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled Transformations in the Wilderness, Elijah and God's Provision from 1 Kings 17. So if you remember last week, this is so this is the second part of of a four-part series on transformations in the wilderness. So if you remember the theme for this year is this is the year transformation for us based in uh, Romans chapter 12 about how the simple process of God changing us is this idea of putting ourselves on the altar and dying daily and in the process of doing that of being a living sacrifice, God changes our mind to think things in God's way, and we are not conformed to the world, but we actually are transformed so that we know God's will because we become more familiar with it uh, in the same way that Jesus did. Well, last week we looked at Moses, right? And we looked at um, how God meets us in the wilderness and how that he turns that desolate place into a holy place and how God gives us perfect purpose in the wilderness and how he answers our concerns. Uh, well, tonight we're going to look at uh, Elijah. Elijah is a prophet from the Old Testament. You guys probably remember stories about him from uh, your childhood if you grew up in the church. Uh, this is the same guy that called down fire from heaven uh, in the great display of power that God showed against the prophets of Baal. Um, this is uh, a really dark time in the history of, of, of the people of Israel. And uh, so the the First and Second Samuel chronicle uh, the lives of David, King David, and King Saul. And um, after uh, David leaves the throne, he leaves the throne to his son Solomon. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here for what we're about to get into. So David, when he is when he's king, he strikes a deal with uh, the king of the city of Tyre. Okay, so Tyre is a part of the Phoenician Empire. They were known by their uh, by their economic prowess. These were these were um, maritime, uh, they were a maritime economy, and so that everything was based on shipping, being able to move goods from from the Middle East to Eastern Asia all the way to uh, to Europe. And so they built this powerful economy. And so David strikes the deal with the the ruler, the king of the city of Tyre, and they begin to, to be trade partners. And so David would bring goods to the shore in uh, in Tyre, and they would ship them all over the world. And, and by the same token, the king of Tyre had access all the way to Asia through uh, through Israel. And so as this deal progressed, uh, David passes the crown to his son Solomon. Solomon also strikes a deal with, with the son of, of the king in Tyre. And so this, now we have a second generation of partnership. This is where um, Solomon acquires the, the cedars of Lebanon. So Tyre is in the, in the country of Lebanon. And so the cedars of Lebanon that, that Solomon used to build the temple came from this partnership, right? So um, after Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided. And so David had, or Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, and he also had this public official named Jeroboam, who was kind of his right-hand man in civic affairs. So Solomon, by the end of his, end of his life, you know, we know him as the wisest man who ever lived. Um, but at the end of his life, Solomon had played around with uh, with the pleasures of life. He had grown accustomed to expensive tastes. And as a result, he had overworked the people of Israel. They were so exhausted from his building campaigns and the things that he that he did for himself, just an extravagant lifestyle. 
And so when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam had an opportunity to change the, 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 the landscape in Israel. And so what happened was that uh, Rehoboam went to, his, went to his father's counselors, the old men in the temple, in the, in the, the palace, and he asked their advice. And he said, what do you think I should do? And they said, you need to relieve the burden of the people. Well, he didn't like that. He wanted to build his own empire. And so what Rehoboam decided to do is he was going to go the opposite direction. He was going to say, you thought things were bad with my dad. I'm really going to build an empire. And as a result, the people revolted and God turned his back on Solomon and placed Jeroboam as the king of the northern ten tribes. So they, Jeroboam was the leader of, of a lot of civic things that, uh, that Solomon was a part of. And so when it came time for, for Rehoboam to have this meeting with uh, the city elders, with the elders of Israel, uh, Jeroboam was at the table. And uh, as a result of that meeting and Rehoboam's pride, in, in accordance to what God had already said through the prophets, Jeroboam uh, left the kingdom of Israel and um, he took the, the northern ten tribes with him. This is what eventually turned into Samaria. Well, uh, fast forward. Okay, so generation after generation, the the northern ten tribes they they continue with this um, this relationship with the city of Tyre and with the Phoenician Empire, and so they continue to trade. They continue to see great success. And um, one of the things, though, that was a challenge for them was that the center of worship in Israel was in Jerusalem, was in the temple, right? And so Jeroboam, in an effort to try to mitigate um, his people taking pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to the temple, he decided that he was going to set up alternate places of worship around the, the countryside in, in the northern ten tribes. And so these began, these began to be holy places. These began to be places of worship. Well, slowly but surely, as, as they had traded with the, the city of Tyre and as they had done these things, they uh, eventually uh, started setting up pagan places of worship in the same in, in proximity to these these traditional Israelite places of worship, and so they ended up um, scattering pagan religions all over the northern ten tribes of Israel. Well, fast forward to uh, to the time of Elijah. Okay, we're seven generations separated from Solomon. So seven generations of kings in the north, and there was never one that was holy and did what was right before God. And just one after another, after another, after another, they began to get more and more corrupted by, um, by life and by paganism and by worshiping things that weren't the true God. And so now we have this, this man named Ahab. Ahab is uh, the king of Israel. He's the north, king of the northern ten tribes, right? And he decides, you know what? I want to bolster my economic standing. I want to be a, a, a successful king in the eyes of the world. And so what do I need to do? I need to go back to this old relationship that we had with the city of Tyre that brought us so much success. And I need a, a Phoenician princess to be my bride. And so what he does is he goes to uh, he goes to the city of Tyre and he finds this woman who's the who's a, the princess of the city of Tyre. Her name is Jezebel. Okay, so Jezebel, she is Phoenician to the core, and she worships the god Baal Makart. Now, now this is important. Okay, so now Baal Makart, um, you might know him by a different name. Okay, so eventually, as time progressed, Baal Makart turned into uh, what the Greeks called Hercules. So he is the deified version of Hercules. Okay, so Melkart, he was uh, he was the deified version of Hercules, and he was credited with with economic success, the economic success of the city of Tyre. And so um, he was a god that promised commercial success to his followers. 
He was a prosperity God. And so uh, Ahab was attracted not only to the city of Tyre and the economic success of the Phoenician Empire, but also to this idea that, hey, if I worship this God, I get stuff. Right? Sounds familiar to what some of the things that we, we see in our generation today. Well, in response to the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, they bring this God, baal Makart, to Israel. And the people of Israel begin to worship this God. Now, you got to consider this, that, that the God Baal in the Old Testament, in the, in the early ancient world, um, is actually a pantheon of gods. So there were different different Baals. It wasn't just one God. And so baal Makart was the, uh, he was the economic God in the pantheon of the ancient world. And so as they bring this religion into Israel, the people start to worship baal Makart, and they begin to be drawn away from holy things towards this idea of economic success. And so as Ahab and Jezebel start to, start to push this religion, as it begins to catch fire, God is naturally offended. And so he sends this prophet Elijah, and, and God is about to make a point. And so uh, Elijah comes up and he confronts King Ahab, and he declares that there's going to be a famine in the land until he says otherwise. He says, God told me there's going to be famine in the land until I say otherwise. And uh, in response to the famine, uh, God set the stage for a massive display of power. Okay, so, so in the context of all of this, this is the prequel to the Mount, the, the Mount Carmel incident. This is the prequel to God calling down fire from heaven. So all of this is set up, this boiling pot, okay? So Ahab thinks, okay, well, cool, everything's great. We're going to make money. This is going to, we're going to be successful. Jezebel's all by my side. We, we're, all, we're all good, right? We've got all the things put in our favor. And then God sends a man of God, and he says, I'm going to go ahead and just halt all of the economic success that you might have, and I'm going to shut down the entire natural world. So this is the setting for what we're going to look at tonight. Okay, so... Check this out. In 1 Kings chapter 17, this is, uh, this is Elijah announcing the, uh, the famine on the land. So the first thing I want you to see is that the wilderness that teaches us God's provision. Look at what God does with Elijah. Okay, so, so for the first six verses, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead settler, from the Gilead settler said to Ahab, As the Lord of God, uh, sorry, as the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then the word of the Lord came to him, leaving, leave here, turn eastward, and hide at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the Wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he proceeded to, to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning, and in the evening he would drink from the Wadi. After a while, the wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Okay, so the, I want you to see this here, that the wilderness teaches us God's provision. So, so consider this, right? So God called Elijah to challenge the power of Ahab and baal Makart, right? So God's making a point here. He says, you're not in control, right? So Elijah steps up in, in, in obedience, right? So then God, though, he knows that this is going to be, it's going to cause heat for Elijah. So he says, listen, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pull you out and I'm going to set you over here and you're not going to talk to anybody. You're not going to have to deal with anyone. You just hang out here. I'll take care of you. Okay. God pr protects Elijah by putting him in a secluded place. Okay. So sometimes though, the wilderness isn't a place of punishment. 
It's a place of protection. So consider this, right? So you guys, a lot of you guys know my story about uh, working for the House of Representatives right before I came on staff at Evergreen. That for six months I was I was told to sit at my desk and not do anything, right? So what I didn't realize was as all these political opportunities were come coming, God was protecting me from getting involved in things that I had no business getting involved in, right? So it's it on the on the face of things when we think about the wilderness, we think about it as a place of punishment. It's a place of of quiet seclusion of of God telling us that that we don't deserve to be connected to the world. But the truth is that sometimes, though, the wilderness is a place of protection. And in that protection, though, God takes care of us. God sent Elijah to the wilderness on purpose. He didn't wander there, right? So I want you to consider this. If you're, we're all quarantined, right? We're all, we're all locked down. The truth is that God did this on purpose. This wasn't an accident. This isn't an accident for you. It's not an accident for me. So these moments, whether it's Savannah not knowing what to do with her day or, or Christian waiting on a job or losing, losing hours or being furloughed or trying to get into a, to a college or whatever the case may be, these things happen on purpose. And when God sets you down, he says, you know, I'm going to put you on the bench. The truth is that if he doesn't want you in the game, what you consider to be the game, you're not supposed to be there. That we have this idea that somehow I've I've done something bad, and so as a result, God is gonna He's gonna separate me from all the things that I want to do. But the truth is that it's not that way at all. God does this on purpose. He does this to protect us. He does this to set us aside to to be able to be faithful in what we're doing, what we're supposed to be doing. So not only all of these things, but the wilderness, it, it, it's, it's, it's not ever an accident. God knows exactly what he's doing. So look at what happens with the ravens. This is kind of cool, right? So the ravens are God's provision. Think about, consider this. So Elijah is by himself. The wadi is, is, is another word for river. Okay, so he's by the wadi. He's by the river where, where it comes into the Jordan. And in the morning, ravens bring him bread and meat. Now, what's interesting to me is that when God sends us to the wilderness, he's already planned our provision for us. Okay, it's not a surprise. He doesn't get us in the wilderness and he's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to, oh, I got to feed him now, right? He doesn't do that. God's already planned all of this stuff out. He says, listen, the the, the ravens are going to come and they're going to feed you. So Elijah goes, okay, this is kind of weird, but ravens are bringing me food, right? In this case, he tells Elijah exactly what he's going to do. But many times though, God, he, he requires that we obey him first in faith. But one of the things that we can take away from this passage though, is that when God speaks and he tells us to do something, he is going to give us the resources to do what he's called us to do. We can't walk through life thinking that somehow God is trying to figure out ways to, to mitigate our problems and the things that we get ourselves into. It doesn't work that way at all. Everything that God does, he does on purpose. And he does it, and it's pre-planned by him, right? He is omniscient. He's all-powerful. He is, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. This is not a God who, who wrings his hands wondering how he's going to take care of the little things of our life. <coughs> In fact, I saw a quote today from Spurgeon that said that, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to box this, but he, he, in essence, he says, the God that calls all the stars by name and numbered them has no problem keeping track of the little issues of our life. Right? He knows exactly what you need. See, anybody reading this account would know 
that our God, the one true God, is the true provider, right? So consider the context here. You have Ahab and Jezebel trying to rule with an iron hand, trying to, to bring economic success, and God is he is he's making it very apparent and well known. He's underlining this and putting it in bold letters. He's saying, I am in control on a big picture. And even on the small picture, though, when he has Elijah alone by this by this river, he gives him enough provision. See, there's a difference between the wilderness and rebellion. Let me let me explain this for a minute. Okay, so you have the wilderness that we've we, we, we're talking about this right now. The, the wilderness is a place of solitude where God is always present and He's providing for us. Right. This is this is a place that happens on purpose. Now, there is such a thing that if we we plug our ears and we we cover our eyes and we tell God, I want you to speak to me, I want you to show me your truth, and we willfully choose to ignore him, God will eventually give us what we want. Romans chapter 1 says that. It says that if you try to ignore God, he will eventually, he'll pull himself away and say, you know what, if you want to do this without me, I'm going to let you go ahead and do it. But what I'll tell you, though, is that the end of that road is extreme darkness. It is pain. It is it is something that you cannot you cannot recover from. The desert. So there's a difference between the desert and the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where God provides for us, a place where we grow. It's a place where God teaches us His provision. He gives us vision, and He He clarifies our mind. The desert, though, is a place of dangerous solitude, because it's separate from the goodness of God. James chapter one says that all things that are good come from the Father. And that God can't tempt us with evil because he's not evil. The same thing is true here. That if we choose to live our lives and we fight this this reality that God is in control, that God is the provider, we try to try to hold on to everything as tight as we can, try to control everything, God will eventually let us spin ourselves into chaos until we finally come to the place to where we will release it. See, Sometimes God calls us to do things that take a lot of courage, like stepping up and talking to Ahab and calling down this famine. One thing that we can always count on is that he won't allow us to go through it alone. He's always going to be there right with us. One of God's favorite attributes is that he's the great provider. He loves this. It is one of his favorite things. He's not going to call you to do something and then withdraw from you. The point of the wilderness is God showing us up close and personal that he wants to provide for us. This is the truth of where we are right now. The challenge that we face going through this coronavirus stuff and being isolated and being secluded, having to be distanced from each other and distanced from, from others, is that God wants to show us that he's the provider. Right? Some of you have, have seen your, your employment suffer. Some of you have seen changes in your lifestyle. You, you've, you've made plans that you are going to do things certain things, and because of the jo- your job situation, everything has changed. That truth that God is your provider doesn't change because of your situation. Your situation has nothing to do with this rock-hard truth that God is the provider. Understand that this time in the wilderness is a time for God to put his power on display to show you that he's a provider. Okay, the second thing that I want you to see is in the next couple of verses. Is it's that the wilderness prepares us to lead other people in faith. So Elijah has just spent a lot of time being fed by these ravens and drinking from this river. Okay, so the river dries up. The ravens stop coming. 
And now it's time for him to move, move on. So look at what it says in verses 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived in the, at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, Please, please bring me a little water for a cup, uh, in a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord God, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bake, anything to bake, only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to prepare it for myself that my son and my son so we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you as you have said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, The flour jar will not become empty, and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. So consider this. God used the experience with the ravens to give Elijah confidence to be obedient. Right? The hope that we have is tangible because it's rooted in experience. Right? We've talked about this a few weeks ago, about how the, the transformation that happens because of the Son, because of Jesus, it is real. This hope is real. It's tangible. And the reason why we can say that is because it's rooted in our own experience. Right? I know that God pays my bills because I have lived Matthew 6 and 7. I know it for a fact. It doesn't matter how many arguments you make to me, how many intellectual points you have. I know for a fact that God pays my bills. And there's nothing that will shake my confidence of that. Because he has shown me over and over again by experience what is the truth. Right? Remember, we, we become living sacrifices. And in the process, the process of experience, God changes our mind and we begin to see his will. But if we choose to not be obedient, to not have that experience with him, we will never be able to see and walk with confidence because we're not going to have that experience with God. See, God has already prepared for Elijah's ministry to this woman by commanding her ahead of time. Right? Look at verse 9. It says in verse 9, it says, Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. See, God's telling Elijah, hey, Listen, this is not about you. I already have prearrangements for you to go to go talk to this lady. And she's going to take care of you, yes, but there's more coming. Okay, so not only does God use the experience with the ravens to give Elijah confidence, but also the confidence in God leads to an expectation that he will do what he says. Right? So when he arrived, Elijah is looking for the woman that God had sent to him, right? So, but God uses the wilderness to prepare us for what's next. Look at, look at what, uh, his response. So he gets there, she's picking up sticks, and she's kind of resigning herself to the truth that she is basically going to die. So he says, hey, will you, will you give me a cup of water? She says, sure, why not? Hey, while you're out there, would you, would you bring me back a, a loaf of bread? Now, she's not running by Walmart to get bread. She's going to have to make it herself. So the whole time that she's making this bread, she's thinking, "My, this is the last that we have. 
And so she says that. She says, I was going to go make us a last meal. And then me and my son are just going to die. She's totally defeated. She's, she's totally, she's lost all hope. But then Elijah says, do this for me and you won't go hungry until it rains again. Understand the power in that statement. He's literally telling her, hey, listen, um, you do this because God said he'll take care of you and everything's going to be fine. See, God uses these things to teach us and to be able to teach others. So here's an example, right? So for us, we consider all these small little elements of our life and, and they don't seem to be that big. These small little moments where we have to be obedient. Um, but what happens though is that God uses these little these little things and he, he fashions together a, uh, a firm foundation for us to be able to build on. So, so think about this. So if you consider, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a, a stonemason or a, a brick mason lay, lay a wall. I used to see this quite a bit whenever I was working in construction. So they can only do a certain number of rows at a time. They can't actually go in and build the entire wall in one setting. So typically they'll build three feet, two, three feet at a time, maybe four feet at a time. Um, and they have to let it set. They've got to let it set so the concrete, the mortar in between the bricks and the stone can actually set up and turn hard and it can be a, a strong base, right? So in the same way, God does the same thing for us. All of these little things that we go through, he has us go through in seasons, right? So this one fits with this one, this one fits with this one. And so what happens is he begins to lay a, a section of a wall in our lives. And he waits for a little while, he lets, that, he lets that set up, and then the next season starts. And he starts putting other little things on there. And each individual one of those pieces are little lessons that we learn. Most of the time, we learn them in the wilderness. And so... This, this idea that, that God is going to only work in your life and you're not ever going to have to move past this one place where you are right now, it's not, gonna, it's not true. God is always going to be pushing you forward. And the thing about it is that the things that he teaches us today are going to build us and build the opportunity for tomorrow. So in the same way as that rock wall is built, as that, as that brick wall is built, God lays a foundation so that later on we can come up on top of that and we can build another one and we can go higher and we can get stronger and we can get, we, our faith can grow. So, but Elijah, he's coming into the situation and he, he doesn't know if this is the right woman or not. But the woman's response though confirms that, uh, that, that she's the one that Elijah's meant to be with. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, but she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any, anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the, mug, in the jug. Just now I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. Okay, consider this about Elijah, right? He's been, he's been as, abs as absurd as it sounds, he's been sitting on the side of a river and wild birds have been bringing him meat and bread for we don't know how long. Okay, so if there's anything that Elijah is used to at this point, it's going to be that weird stuff is normal for him. Okay, so when we have a proper view of who God is, of what he does, what happens is we begin to see things that other people see as impossible. We see them as ordinary, everyday opportunities, right? So Elijah, well, he would have been used to God working in impossible ways. So Elijah, considering his task, would God send him, send this prophet to a person with a full pantry? Or 
would he send him to someone who would require a miracle to survive? Okay, so what's interesting about this, talking about God using past experience to build future ministry opportunities, is that this is really similar to what happens in 2 Kings chapter 4 with Elijah's, uh, his, his disciple, Elisha. So Elisha comes to a, to a similar situation where a woman is dying and she's she's starving, and he, she and and it, she has an oil jar and it continues to produce oil and ends up paying off of her debts and, and taking care of her. So consider this. I guarantee you that Elisha has heard this story many years in the future. That God used this example to teach Elisha what to do in the future. The things that we do, the opportunities that God gives us. These, these seemingly impossible situations, God uses them for us. Not just for us to minister and teach others about what God can do in impossible situations, but those who come after us also. We can then bring confidence, not just in ourselves, but also we can translate that to others as we show them how, to, how God works in impossible ways, but also people that didn't even experience the events at all can draw strength from it. See, confidence also brings clarity and reassurance when God asks for hard things. Look at what happens here in uh, in verses 13 through 16, right? So then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you've said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. So God had prepared Elijah to be able to to, to see clearly through this thing, this, this opportunity to be able to, uh, to reassure us. So he, here, think about it this way. So... Some of you guys know I, I went, I've started to try to get into primitive camping, right? So I've done this once so far. Um, but I, uh, but before I left on my hiking trip, right? So I had, I received a list of all the things that I thought that, that I was supposed to take with me. And I'll be honest, um, I went with Taylor. So if you're going to go camping uh, and you, you ask an army ranger to take you camping, um, be sure that you... Uh, are prepared that he's going to send you like a three-page document of all the little things that you're going to need. Like, we're going to be gone for one night. How do I need all this stuff? You never know. So he sends me this list of all these things that we're going to need, right? So I had to take an inventory of what I needed to have for the trip. So when, I, when I'm looking through the stuff, I'm acquiring all of these little pieces of equipment and different things, and, and I'm thinking, okay, well, there's, I don't see how I'm going to need this. I don't see how I'm going to need that. I don't see how I'm going to need this. Um, but Lo and behold, when we got into the into the into the field, I realized, oh wow, this doohickey thing that I needed. I, oh, I've got that here. Oh, I've got this here. I've got this here. Um, it didn't make sense to me before I went on the journey. It's that way for us too. Whenever God gives us opportunities after we've been through the wilderness, and He's we don't even realize what we've been equipped with. We don't realize until we actually get out into the task at hand what God wants us to do. And so we think when we first start the journey, uh, when God says, go do this thing, we think, well, I'm not equipped for that. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. I can't, 
I know God's done some things in my life. I've had a couple of experiences, but you know, I, I, I can't speak to that with any authority because I don't really know. I, I, I'm not just not that person. But the truth is that whenever we get into what God has called us to do, when we look in our toolkit, we realize, oh, wow, I really am equipped for this. It's similar to this as like this, this last week, right? Um, I was, I was shooting a video for, for reach, right? The video, the video that I put out yesterday on our Instagram, setting up the camera and all this other stuff. And it hit me as I was, um, as I was setting everything up that I've done this before. Uh, in the few years that I, that I worked in campaigns, one of the things that I would do is I would write scripts for candidates who would run for office and I would produce their, their videos for Facebook and for other things. I would write the shots. I would put the set the cameras up. I would, I would do all those things. And it wasn't until I was on the front of the camera, in front of the camera recording the videos that I realized, oh, wow, I already had this tool in my toolkit. God did this on purpose. See, Elijah was prepared for this event because he had history with God. We've got the same opportunity when we go through the desert. Right? We have to change our way of thinking to see the wilderness as preparation for the adventure. The wilderness is not a focal point. It's not the focal point of our lives. It's the preparation period. Right? The harder the wilderness, the more profound the transformation is going to be. So, you know, I know where a lot of you are right now. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do, um, how you're going to you're make your ends meet, how you're going to stay on the trajectory that we talk about. But I want to assure you in this, that what you're going through right now, whether it's COVID-related or not, the wilderness that you're in right now, waiting for a job for 10 months or whatever the case may be, God is using this. This is not wasted time. This is profoundly important time. This is the pregame. This is training. This is basic training for the thing that's next. God has been you've been teaching you and he's been he's been making you acquire stones to build the wall. This is something that is so so much bigger than just God not being on time. He's exactly on time. And we should be confident in that. We should know that whatever we walk into next, we're going to know exactly what's what what God wants for us in that moment, but until that time comes, it's not for us to decide. Okay, the last thing I want you to see. So we've seen, we've seen Elijah work in the wilderness in, in getting fed by the ravens. We've seen him speak in the life of this little family, this widow and her son. Okay, so God has laid, laid a, a pretty significant foundation here for him to be able to speak truth into this family. So let's look at what happens next. So the next thing I want you to see is that the wilderness gives us confidence in God's power and credibility with others. So this, this widow and her son have seen God move through Elijah. So look at what happens next. Things get intense. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house becomes, became ill. His illness got worse until it, he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Man of God, why are you here? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? But Elijah said to her, Give me your son. He took, he took him from her arms, brought him to the upstairs room where he was staying, and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, to the Lord and said, Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the, on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. 
He cried out to the Lord and said, My, my Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah, and the boy's life came into him again, and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house, and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man. You are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. So, if this lady didn't believe that Elijah was a man of God yet, because of the the never-ending flour and oil in her kitchen, God's making, he's putting a very bold exclamation point at the end of this sentence. Right, so God's provision to this widow and her son, it set an expectation that Elijah was a servant of God. She she knew that he was he was special. She knew that he had experience with God, that he talked with a confidence. He had this air of 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 a certainty about him. But I I just I can't help but think in my sanctified imagination that she wasn't quite sold on him being a man of the true God. I mean, there's a lot of gods out there, right? But Elijah is different because he's speaking boldly. He's speaking truthfully. He's speaking from experience. And no one can take that from him. So what started as God teaching Elijah provision in the wilderness turned into the widow and her son sharing in in the provision. And God was using Elijah as a conduit to show his power to this woman and her son. The miracle isn't just about Elijah, though. God wanted to show the widow that he loved her. Consider this. Consider that when God told Elijah to go see this woman that he had picked out for him to talk to, God had a message for that woman. See, when when we get called to do something, it's really hard for us to get outside of our own heads and think that it has it's not about us. Right? When when uh when you're facing a an emergency, you're facing a crisis in your life, or you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, it's really easy to be all about, well, what's God going to do for me? But one of the things that's apparent in this story is that God had something he wanted to say to this woman, and he wanted to say it through Elijah. And so, yeah, he he met her physical needs first. He, He made sure that she had a full belly and she was taken care of. But God doesn't just want to feed people. He doesn't just want to put clothes on their back. He doesn't just want to make them warm on a cold night. God wants them. God wants you. He doesn't just want all this stuff. He's not about production. It's about you. And it's really easy for us, though, to think that everything is about me. But if we truly see people as God sees them, we know that the, the job that we're given in obedience as we, as we express ourselves in obedience... We know that we should be doing it to bring others to God, to bring others to Jesus. You see, when we embrace what God has called us to do, all our wilderness, those moments are used to show others God's love. So the question tonight, right, is what are you telling those around you by how you've handled your wilderness moments? If you're in the wilderness right now, you're in isolation right now, You've got people around you, family, friends that you see, people that live with you. What does is, what is your attitude say to them about how you view God's wilderness? What is, your, uh, what is your demeanor, what does your spirit tell people about your confidence in who God is? 
are you truly telling them that, that God is in control or are you wringing your hands talking about yourself? See, so this woman, right, so she has a typical human response. So so her son gets sick and she says, uh, she assumes that, that God's presence means that he's going to judge her, that God's there to, to punish her. It says in verse 18 that she says, why did you come to me? To, to feed us and almost just just to take my son's life. See, she doesn't know who she's talking about. People who are ignorant about God, they they think that they know who He is, and they haven't spent any time in His book. They haven't spent any time trying to get to know Him at all. But Elijah, though, his responsibility is to proclaim the truth of who God is. That God is a God that His default is mercy. His default is grace. His default is to be a servant. His, his default is to give and give and give. But this woman, she's ignorant about who God is. But God chooses Elijah to put that on display. See, when trouble comes, our job is to bring people immediately to the Lord. And we need to point them to his power. That's what Elijah does, right? Once we've seen God move in our own lives and, th- and through us into the lives of others... We start to see people expect God-sized things to come out of us. The same thing with Elijah here. Our obedience in the wilderness will play a direct role in how we receive our testimony later. See, these people watching us, if we waste this opportunity, we risk not allowing God to do incredible things through us. So Elijah, if he if he's considering, oh, this is all about me, right? So God fed me in the wilderness, so he's going to feed me over here. We're just waiting this thing out until he tells me it's time to rain again. So I'm going to go and talk to this widow woman. She's going to give me food, and I'm going to go about my business, do my thing. But that's not the way that he received that. God gives us these wilderness opportunities to build confidence. Not just in him, but also people can people can borrow that confidence from us. And so where do we go from here? What's the takeaway for tonight? I want you to walk away with these three things, okay? I'm going to give you a challenge. If you got a pen, write this down or write it on your phone. Okay? What are the areas that God is teaching you in right now? Okay, if you are, if you're like Elijah and you're you're, you're laying by the, the river, God's taking care of you. You feel pretty safe right now. Um, but you know what? It's kind of hard not to just twiddle your thumbs and waste your time because you're just waiting for it to be over. Make a list of the two things that you think about the most. The two things that you worry about the most. Your belly's full, you got food, you got a place to sleep, you got your provisions taken care of. But there's something that occupies your mind. Something. What is it? Write it down. And put it somewhere that you're going to see it every day. And pray for it. Pray about it. And also, remember there's a difference between listening and hearing. Start listening. When you do your quiet time, whether you are reading, it doesn't matter where you're reading, search for an answer for that question, information about that question. God's, God wants to equip you in that thing. He wants you to do business about that thing. And you need to be satisfied with no, with no answer. He's not going to give you a complete answer. He wants he, He's going to leave a little bit left for you to figure out because the ne- you're going to need it on the next leg of the journey. Okay, write it down, pray about it. Look for truth in your quiet times to find information that's connected to that thing. 
and pray that God would open your eyes to the truth. Now, it could be, you know, I want you to consider this. What wildernesses have you been through that God has given you unique experience to help people? Right? It could be that God's called you. Okay, cool. Well, you're not by the river anymore, but you're you're on your way to go talk to your version of the widow. Right? God has put people in your life that need you. Whether it's through technology or right next right next door. So what wildernesses have you been through that can help people? Are you blissfully unaware of the needs of people around you? Or can you offer some encouragement based on what God's done in your life? I want you to put that person uh, that you know needs you and write, write their name on a post-it note. And put it on the mirror of your bathroom. Take a dry erase marker and write their name on your bathroom mirror. And I want you to pray for them and pray for opportunities, the ways that you can minister to them and love them and encourage them. Right, Even if something as simple as sending them a text message. God's given you a gift from your time in the wilderness. Don't waste it. Okay, and the third thing is that uh, if you've got confidence, say you're you're walking in this and you're you're rocking and rolling, you're tracking with everything I'm saying, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. I want to ask you, what opportunities has God given you to point people to his incredible power? Are you directing them to him or are you trying to fix the problem yourself because you're so smart? It's really easy to take hard-earned wisdom that God has shown you through toil and to pretend that you are the one that has the answers. Elijah, he, he took that boy, he took, up, took him up to his room, and he did one thing. He cried out to God. He didn't tell the woman, oh, I got this. Let me just go talk to, talk to him. I'll get this all straightened out. No. He humbly came before the Lord and he said, Lord, you've given me this opportunity. You've given me these strengths. You've given me these, this confidence. How do you want me to use it? Show me. Give me opportunities. And make me humble. Pray like Elijah that God would show up. And when he does, give him the credit. Encourage people. I, I want you guys to see this. That God has given you a gift with this whole Corona business. I know that it's, that it is um, frustrating and it's challenging, but the truth is that in all, for all intents and purposes, we really are going to be one of the few generations that experience something like this. That means that one day when your grandchildren or great grandchildren, um, are with you, you'll be able to tell them the stories about what God did during this time in your life. So consider that. This is not a place of punishment. This is not a place to look at your watch and wait for it to be over. This is a place of preparation for the future because God has given us something great to do. Don't give up. Don't be frustrated. Know that God has something incredible for you because this is the type of preparation that he uses to do incredible things.
What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down.